It's Curie City editor Alexandra Solomon. During this pandemic, we've all grown accustomed to feeling a sense of uncertainty and anxiety about illness. But during the Cold War, particularly in the 1950s and 60s, Americans were really worried about another kind of global threat, nuclear war. Five, four, three, two, one. Thousands of tons of Earth particles are drawn upward into the ascending mushroom cloud where radioactive products of the nuclear explosion contaminate them. Eventually, they settle to Earth, and this is called radioactive fallout. Instead of getting vaccines, social distancing, and masking up to stave off impending danger, back then, people found comfort another way. And that gets us to something Kyle Bolliard noticed. He teaches in the northwest suburbs, and when he used to drive to work, he passed a strange sign. It's on the side of the sturdy brick building owned by the Regional Wastewater Treatment Authority. So we're here right now at, at Howard and McCormick where this sign is, and I, I, you know, I pass this building every single day, and I, at some point along the way I just kind of noticed it. It's a pretty small sign. It's kind of rusted a little bit. It says fallout shelter on floors one in basement. Fallout shelter, as in nuclear fallout, like after an atomic bomb blast. You know the symbol on the sign, three yellow triangles pointing down inside a circle. That sign got Kyle thinking. I was wondering if there were any nuclear fallout or nuclear blast shelters left in the city of Chicago or anywhere in the suburban area. Kyle's talking about underground bunkers built during the Cold War when the nation was worried about a nuclear attack by the Soviet Union. By some estimates, the U.S. built hundreds of thousands of these shelters in the 20 years after World War II. But are there any left in our area? And what are they like today? Back in 2015, we sent reporter Chris Bentley to find the answer. He did find some old shelters, but couldn't turn up any apocalypse-proof bunkers that were fully stocked and ready to weather a nuclear war. Still, the echoes of these things are everywhere, often in places you might not expect. That's next. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. It might be hard to imagine now, but big industrial cities like Chicago were considered major targets during the Cold War. Diane Adams grew up in the city's Woodlawn neighborhood during the 1950s. We had to worry about getting people were buying and making fallout shelters and trying to find out where we could go if there was an attack and all that kind of stuff. And they had those little signs that were saying that you go here like in the subway but for those who had the money and who had homes they could build their own little bunkers and we in the city who were apartment dwellers or whatever we were just like <laughs> and if you lived near maybe the subway you, you had a chance but it was just an eerie time to find what's left of those shelters it helps to have somebody who knows where to look 
yeah. we had fallout shelters everywhere. Uh, right. Most of the old-style public schools, like, like right here in this neighborhood, there are a couple of buildings that had fallout shelter emblems on them. Larry Langford, spokesman for the Chicago Fire Department, is driving me around the south side, pointing out the kind of public shelters Diane Adams remembers. He says rather than spend billions of dollars building new structures, the federal government designated tens of thousands of existing buildings as fallout shelters. We found several of these in the Chicago area. Again, old schools and that building that sparked Kyle Bolliard's question. Basically, public buildings we see all the time. City Hall was a fallout shelter. Many, many businesses that had underground facilities downtown were considered fallout shelters. Chicago had thousands of these. But some agencies did more than just slap a metal sign onto an existing building to make it a shelter. Sometimes they built new spaces, too. But this was, uh, the door that we had right here was at one time much heavier, leading into what is the fallout shelter. Langford brings me, Kyle, and Kyle's wife, Amanda Snyder, to a Southside fire station with its own dedicated shelter, Engine 60 in Hyde Park. The special air handling system had a lot of supplies in here. The walls are very thick, concrete, designed to withstand all kinds of shock. Direct hit? No, nothing's going to withstand that. Could you, any of you, imagine spending two weeks down here? It would get really dark and really cramped. I'm interested to see if we can figure out how many people would have been down here. Sometimes the, we mentioned earlier, sometimes those signs on the outside had a capacity listed. But if there were hundreds of people down here, it would be terrible, I think. And I imagine it would start to smell really bad. Right. Probably after, like, a couple hours. The filtration system was supposed to take care of that. But still, if you have a lot of people in a confined area... The space under this fire station looks like it would have held hundreds of people. Today, it's more like a big basement. But during the Cold War, the steel doors were designed to seal you in, where you'd wait until the government said you were safe from radioactive debris outside. You can imagine just rows and rows of cots in here or just bed mats on the ground. I don't know what the setup would have been like. But as you see, this was a huge place. Wow. Yeah. That's an incredible whole kind of maze of, maze of rooms and concrete. Mm-hmm. It can still be used today. Something if we needed to. We don't have the supplies here now, but we got the space. We could bring things in if we had to. At the time, the U.S. government had a division called the Office of Civil and Defense Mobilization, and it was supposed to stock fallout shelters with supplies, like fortified crackers, giant drums of water, and sanitation kits for personal hygiene. Langford says no one's done that for decades, and none of the agencies that I talked to local, county, state, federal, could say exactly when they stopped checking on fallout shelters in Chicago. They also couldn't say what happened to records about how many shelters existed in the area. The issue just kind of faded away. Even in 1963, when the Cuban Missile Crisis put the U.S. on the brink of war, Chicago government officials sounded more fatalistic than prepared. Someone asked Chicago's chief civil defense administrator what they should do, and he said, and I quote, take cover and pray. This is Kenneth Rose, a professor at California State University, Chico, and author of the book One Nation Underground. He says even though there was much ado about preparing for nuclear war during the early 60s, Chicago, like many cities, kind of dragged its feet. In 1961, Chicago aldermen decided to allow residents to build their own shelters in case the public network wasn't enough. A reporter for the Christian Science Monitor was at that meeting. So I'm quoting here, When aldermen were not harassing the discussion, they clipped fingernails or yawned towards the ceiling, 
for the most part, paying little attention to the government shelter documents handed them at the beginning of the meeting. Few of them asked so even at the height of the Cold War, the sense of urgency was drastically different depending on who you asked. Rose says a lot of people in big cities figured, why worry about fallout when the bomb itself might level a major target like Chicago? Still, some citizens took matters into their own hands and built private shelters. It's hard to say how many went through with it, but I did find the house where, in 1961, a Mrs. Bernice Gilhooley built Chicago's first publicly authorized private fallout shelter. She spent $3,500 on it. Today, that's almost $28,000. Jim Schaller now owns the Bridgeport home and the remains of that shelter. Well, when I bought the house, there was a room in the basement, opened it up, went down a couple of steps. I was in a bomb shelter, had trundle beds on the wall. It had five-gallon glass containers of water. There was crank to crank air and air shafts in there that were sticking out of the property next door. It was a great hiding spot for my wife. It locked the metal door, heavy metal door, locked on both sides. So you guys actually used it? Oh, I had all kinds of junk in there, garbage, just, you know. But one day they wanted to do something with the property, so they had to do that, you know, cave that in and, you know, put a foundation down, whatever they were doing next door. The shelter was imploded, and Schaller says he threw out the old supplies. Now he does his laundry by some patched-over drywall where the steel vault door used to be. It was a novelty is all it was, a place to put junk, another closet. Just another closet. Psychologically, Schaller's a long way from Cold War-era Bernice Gilhooley and other Chicago-area residents who built their own shelters. But every day, a lot of us use public buildings that once served as fallout shelters without ever noticing it. If it weren't for the yellow metal sign, our question asker Kyle Bolliard probably wouldn't have either. But here's something to think about. Those shelters were created out of fear of nuclear weapons. Today, there are still thousands of weapons out there. Some are still pointed at us. But it seems like most of us have come around to the idea that it's just not worth worrying about nuclear attack. I asked Kenneth Rose whether we should worry. But no one should be building shelters, in your opinion, to prepare for the nuclear In my nu- opinion, no one should be building shelters because that's... No, living in fear of nuclear war is no way to live a life. And um, there's plenty of survivalists out there who have spent a lot of money, you know, preparing for this ghastly possibility. But as far as I'm concerned, it's wasted money and a wasted way to live your life. Well, uh, hopefully you are correct. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope so, yeah. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I'd never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. A year and a half into the pandemic, the number of people in the U.S. quitting their jobs is still growing. Hey, it's Alexandra again. So 2021 was kind of the year of the quitter. Well over 20 million people quit their jobs in the second half of 2021. Some are calling it the big quit. 
Others, the Great Resignation. You've probably heard that phrase by now, the Great Resignation. The Great Resignation. The Great Resignation. So many workers have left. Pretty soon, every business is just going to be self-service. Like, you realize you're going to have to make your own food at a restaurant, or you're going to have to give yourself a root canal. Or even In November worse. alone last year, a record 4.5 million people left their jobs. And here's where you come in. If you are one of them, we really want to hear from you. Did you quit your job during the pandemic? If you quit, how did you do it? What are you doing now? How's it going? Is it going better or worse than you imagined? Tell us your story, and we just might include it in an upcoming episode. You can send us an email at curiouscity at wbez.org, hit us up on our social channels, or leave us a voicemail at 888-789-7752. We're looking forward to hearing your stories. Reporting today comes from Chris Bentley. Curiosity is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and produced by Joe Dassault and Jason Mark. Adriana Cardona-Magigad is our reporter. Maggie Civet is our digital and engagement producer. And Asia Singleton is Curiosity's intern. I'm Alexandra Solomon. Thanks for listening. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.